0: Visit DenaliCanning.com forward slash free to claim your free lids and start your preserving adventures today. That's DenaliCanning.com forward slash free. Greetings, urban farmers, gardeners, and healthy food visionaries. Farmer Greg here. And welcome to the 491st episode of the Urban Farm Podcast, where every day we work together to educate and inspire you to become part of your food revolution. Today on our podcast, we have someone who uses spaces above planters to their best advantage. We're talking with returning guest Jason Johns about vertical gardening. Jason is the author of Vertical Gardening, A Complete Guide to Growing Food, Herbs, and Flowers in Small Spaces as well as 17 other gardening books, oh my gosh, on everything from greenhouse gardening to growing giant pumpkins. Jason is passionate about gardening, having grown his own produce for over 20 years. He started with a secondhand greenhouse, an 8-foot by 6-foot patch of his mother's garden, and far too many tomato plants. If you want to hear that story, go back to episode 443. Jason, we got to meet you in episode 443 back in May when we talked about tomatoes. Welcome back to the show. Are you ready to rock vertical gardening?
1: I really am, Greg. It's great to be back and lovely to talk to you again.
0: Excellent. Thank you. Well, thank you, thank you. I'm blushing a little bit. Can you bring <laughs> us up to speed on what's been happening with you since we chatted last?
1: Well, this this year, I've obviously, I've started vertical gardening because I, I've realized that the space I've got isn't big enough. So, uh, I've done some of that.
0: <laughs> yeah, we always but have that problem, don't we? Our gardens it, it, aren't it, big enough.
1: Exactly. You know, you grow too many plants and you wonder what you're going to do with them. So, I've investigated vertical gardening. And because of that, I got into herbs. And I've since planted a big herb garden. And through the herb garden I planted, I've also got into bees because oh. I realized basically how endangered the bees are and how vital they are to our life on this planet. So, yeah you know, it's all starting to become a bit interconnected for me really. And, uh, by vertical gardening and growing herbs I'm providing an environment for the bees and they're happy about it.
0: Oh, no kidding. So, let's talk about the herbs for a moment. I usually say herbs, but I'm going to go with your <laughs> with your version right now. Let's talk about the herbs because when in our pre-conversation I said, "So, do you have a book coming out about that?" and what did you say?
1: I said I released one uh, just a few weeks ago. It's a big book all about herbs. It's got lots of different types of herbs in, how to grow them, how to use them. Nice. And they're just lovely. I've just got so into using them for cooking and various other things. I, I boiled up bay leaves in water and then used the, the water on as a compress on some sore joints, and it really, really helped. Wow. So I, I'm really sort of getting into the, these herbs and how they can be used, not just for cooking, but for health benefits as well. So yeah. they're really, really interesting.
0: One, one of the cool things about herbs, uh, yeah, I'd see, did you hear <laughs> me pause there for a moment? One of the I cool did. things about herbs is that you, typically you plant them and they grow perennially. They'll come back year after year. I know I have a forest of mint in the backyard and a forest of oregano in the front yard that is just always there.
1: Yeah, a lot of them will self-seed. There's quite a few that are winter hardy and you know things like marjoram, which is one of my favorites, I've got uh, a plant that must be a good four or five feet across now. Yes. And in the summer, it's absolutely covered in bees and butterflies. Yep. It's absolutely fascinating. I sat watching them the other day for ages and taking lots of pictures of them because I just thought it's just so interesting.
0: Nice. Pictures in preparation for your bee book,
1: maybe? Uh, that could be the case. I've certainly uh, been working on one of those and hope to release something in the next couple of weeks.
0: Nice. You are a prolific writer and I just really want to do a a, a virtual shout out to you and thank you for doing that because your books are cool and I have vertical gardening right here in my hand right now. So let's talk, what is vertical gardening?
1: It's basically when we grow at the moment, we plant things in the ground and we plant them in rows or blocks. And if you've got three feet of ground, you can grow some plants in that three feet of ground. Vertical gardening is about growing upwards. So you use planters one of the planters i've got is i've got guttering from a house that catches the rain i've drilled holes in it and i have fixed it onto a fence so i've got four or five rows of this guttering wow. in it is some soil and in there i grow th- strawberries and some shallow rooted herbs so this wall it was just a wall before it was very boring looking But now I've got these herbs and strawberries growing up it, and it's nice and productive. And so it's it's making the use of space. So people that live in urban environments, we often don't have acres of land or anything like that. And sometimes literally you have a wall or a fence and, and maybe a small patch of soil. So it's really about making the most of that. And in the simplest form, putting baskets and planters on walls and fences. But there's so much more you can do than that.
0: Tell me one of your favorite ones.
1: Uh, one of my favorite ones that I've seen is people have taken these milk cartons, the big gallon milk jugs, and they've cut them, cut them in half and turned them on the side to make them into planters, and they've fixed them onto the wall. And to me, that's a great idea because you're recycling and you're creating these vertical gardens. There's a house near where I live where they've got the entire wall of the house is covered in pots and planters, and it's just gorgeous in the summer when you go past. It's in the middle of the city, and then there's this one house that's got a huge splash of green and color, and then you go back to boring-looking houses on the rest of the street. It enables people in cities and people with limited space to just grow so much more than they would otherwise be able to. Yeah,
0: and, and can you remind everybody where you're growing at?
1: Well, I'm just outside Manchester in a, a city called Salford in the northwest of England. And judging from this summer, it's the rain capital of the country. Oh,
0: wow. (laughs) Well, and judging from this summer over where I'm at in Phoenix, Arizona, it's the dry capital. We've had less than three inches of rain this summer. so
1: We've had that in a day this summer. It's been really bad. Wow. So it's been very difficult growing some plants, but... That's part of the experience.
0: Yeah, that's part of our, part of our upcoming growing food games. So yes. w- what made you experiment with this whole aspect of vertical gardening?
1: Well, it was, I was researching some time ago for one, one of my books, and I came across a, a, a strawberry planter online. And I sort of looked at it and thought, I quite like the idea of that. So I thought I'd have a go building one. And it's a pyramid planter. It takes about three foot by three foot of ground space and then it goes up, it's about six foot tall, and it's got sort of, it's stepped like a stepped pyramid, and you plant in each of those steps, and I I discovered that in that three foot by three foot space, I could grow 72 strawberry plants, instead of, I think it was about nine, I could possibly have planted otherwise.
0: Yeah, well, yeah, exactly, and is there a picture of that in your book by any
1: chance? There isn't a, of that one. I've not been able to get a picture of it yet. I keep meaning to do it, and I keep forgetting. But there's some certain pictures of other planters around like that.
0: Yeah, I like that idea of pyramid. We, in permaculture, we call them herb spirals.
1: Where ah, we're, yeah.
0: we're actually not using a, the pyramid shape. We do a sp- herb spiral that spirals up, and that, that gets us the same concept.
1: I've got an old drain pipe. Uh, it was about uh, ten, ten, 9, 10 feet tall. I drilled holes in the side of it, put a, a smaller pipe down the middle, put it in the ground, and then I planted lettuces in that. And again, it, it took up well, about a square foot of ground, uh-huh. and I got probably 20 lettuces in it and a tomato plant at the top just to tumble down past the lettuces.
0: Nice. Well, that's that's kind of like the tower gardens. I have one uh, by Juice Plus. They put out something called a tower garden. So that sounds yeah. similar to that. And that's also vertical gardening, right?
1: It is, yeah. And, and it, it's really maximizing your use of space. And as I said, for, for those of us that have a limited area to grow in, it's so beneficial to us to be able to just grow the quantity you want, rather than just making do with two or three plants.
0: Right. Well, I know that when I plant out the tower garden, it's six feet tall. It takes 28 plants. The footprint on it on the bottom is two, you know, a two foot square and it's mind blowing how much food I can get off of it.
1: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And for, for people with the limited areas, it can really make the difference between providing lots of food for your family and just a couple of bits and pieces.
0: Mm-hmm. What are some factors to consider when you're growing vertically?
1: The, the, the main factor that I've discovered is you've got to think about watering. A lot of the time, things will dry out very, very quickly. And the first time I grew in these, these drain pipes, they dried out a lot quicker than I thought they would. Which is why I then put a pipe down the middle with holes in so I could water through that and try and get to them all. But you've got to be really, really thoughtful about how you're going to get water to the plants. And of course, if you're siting them up fairly high, you got to be careful; the water doesn't drip on anyone as it comes through.
0: Oh yeah, there you go.
1: Um, that that's one of the main things. And then, of course, you have to consider the wind as well. If you live in a, a, a windy area, you need to make sure things are, are fixed securely and not going to blow over or blow off the wall and and damage someone or something.
0: Yeah. Well, and, and I would think that the, there's a solar aspect involved in this because I know here in Phoenix, Arizona, if I did a, a vertical application application on a north wall, it's not ever going to get any sun. And if I do a, a vertical application on a western wall here where it gets to be, you know, 120 degrees in the summer, we're just looking at cooking them. So I'm sure that there's there's some aspect of the sun and the heat that has to be taken in, into consideration.
1: Yeah, you, you do have to consider if you're somewhere like yourself, you've got to make sure that they, they get partial shade. So, But with like a north-facing wall, you could grow things that like shade. So I think spinach quite likes being in a oh, shady no. environment. So it, if, if you do have situations like that, I think you need to be a bit more careful about what you're planting where. And on your shady wall, you plant more shade-like loving plants. On, on your sunny wall, you've got to be a lot more careful and include lots of uh, organic matter and, and maybe sort of something like vermiculite or perlite in, in, the, in the wall in the soil to absorb water or that water absorbing gel you sometimes find, things like that. To, to try and counteract the fact that they're going to dry out very, very quickly. Yeah.
0: Well, I, you know, I've thought through this years ago that the, with the sun, we're really looking at two different things. We're looking at the sunlight, which we need to grow plants, and the heat that comes off of it. And when you're growing in an arid area like Phoenix, Arizona, we really have to t- pay close attention to both of those.
1: Yeah. I mean, like I said, you can think about shading them, you know, or maybe you could plant them on the, on the wall where... It gets sun for some of the day and then shade for the rest of the day. So you you do have to understand your environment and and make appropriate adjustments for it based on on what you want to grow and, and how extreme your environment is.
0: Yeah. When I, and I think globally we're starting to see some more extremes like, you know, you're in the rain capital of the world right now and I'm in the dry yeah. capital, or, you know. So it's definitely we have to start paying attention to those things.
1: Yeah, the weather's a lot more more changeable now than it ever was before. And I think, like you say, you, you've got to be prepared to just go with the flow. Last year, this time of year, we, we were 30, deg- 30 degrees Celsius, almost, what, 90 yep. in the 90s. Yep. Very, very hot. We're in the middle of a two-month heat wave, and this year it's completely different. So you've got to you've got to adjust what you grow. Last year, beans grew really, really well this year, can't grow them no matter how much I try. <laughs> they just rot in the ground. So, uh, yeah, you've you, you just got to, as I said, a lot of people get very upset and they, they're stuck in the way that they've got to do it this way. But you've, you've got to be flexible and adaptable, I, I think, with the, the changing of the weather.
0: Well, and I tell people this all the time. Growing food, and, and I say growing food in the desert, but really growing food is one great big grand experiment. And you and I, you with all your books and me with all my classes, we can share what works best for you. You, the listening audience but then you have to go figure it out on your own
1: yeah you've got to adjust it for your area i mean it it took me it must have taken me two or three seasons to work out how to grow good carrots for example you know i've always struggled with them and then try learning and trying different things eventually i worked out what works here and it works in most places but it's it's just things like that you've got to be flexible and adjust for for your local conditions
0: and don't worry if you kill something. I, t- I tell people this all the time also. I have I promise you I've killed more plants than you have.
1: Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right? you, you do, though, don't you? You you, know, you you plant stuff and it just doesn't come up or it comes up and it's very weak and stunted and you just have to remove it and try again. Yeah, exactly.
0: And are there some plants that work better than others using this method?
1: The best type of plants for this method are so tends to be shallow-rooted plants and smaller plants. So something like your uh, cabbage or cauliflower or brussels sprouts or pumpkins, they're not going to work when you're planting them on walls because they're just too big. Now, if you've got the time and effort, you could probably train a small pumpkin plant to grow along a trellis, but that's quite a lot of work. And they're very greedy, very thirsty plants, so it probably wouldn't work. But things like onions, herbs, strawberries, lettuce, radishes, beets, things like that, uh, turnips, all those will grow really, really well in some, something like a vertical garden because they have a much shallower root system.
0: Cool. Uh, so I just thumbed through page 24 of your book, and on the book it says, Tips for Vertical Garden Design. So I was going to ask you you know, what your tips are, and, and what I see here is choose what you grow, which we just talked about. Evaluate your sun exposure. We just chatted about that. What is the next thing on the list that we need to pay attention to?
1: I mean, one of the big things is you've got to work out how you're going to position your plants so that you can get to them. Because that, oh, right. You, you need to make sure that you can access them. So plants that need a lot of attention, you're going to want them a bit lower down. Plants that you can leave to get on with it, you're okay to put them higher up. Things like as well, plants that need that are going to tumble down and, and cover other plants, that could be handy in an area like you, where, where you live. The tumbling plants could be higher up and then shade the lower plants. Oh yes. But in other, in other areas, that's not going to work because there's not enough sunlight for the lower plants once they're they're shaded. So you, you've got to think about where you're positioning stuff if you if you're going that way because it it you can end up realizing that you can't get to stuff you've got to think about harvesting them as well how are you going to get up there you know if if, like herbs you regularly you'd go out and you'd snip a few bits off and bring them into the kitchen so there's no good for them to be up nice and high where you've got to make a lot of effort because of course you're going to go out and go oh i'm not getting the ladder out i won't use the herbs so things like that you have a lot lower down but Things like onions, for example, that you leave them alone till they're ready. They could go higher up because they don't need so much attention.
0: Awesome. And there's really one more big piece that we have to address, and that's about soil and making sure that you put the right kind of soil mixture in your vertical gardens. Tell us about that.
1: What, what a lot of people don't seem to realize is some plants have very, very specific soil requirements. And they actually get very, very upset if you plant them in the wrong soil. Right. Lavender, for example, it doesn't like having wet feet. And if it's in a damp and soggy soil, it will die. Blueberries like an acidic soil. You need to understand, particularly in a container garden, like a, a vertical container garden, the plants are completely dependent upon you for their soil. So once you put the soil in there, it isn't naturally adjusted like sort of soil in the ground is. That it It's part of a bigger hole, whereas it's a very closed system with a, a vertical garden. So you need to understand what the plant wants and make sure that it has the right type of soil. And then obviously you have to feed it, water it and look after it. But it's, it's, in fact, it's a very common thing I hear is people will come and say, oh, I, I can't grow carrots. I talked about those earlier. People say, oh, I can never, ever grow carrots. And they're trying to grow them in a soggy, heavy clay soil full mm-hmm. of stones. Yep. And they're never going to grow right. because they need a very loose, sandy soil that's quite poor free draining with no lumps in it. So it's, it's all about understanding what each plant wants and because you're usually putting them in their own container, you can give them the ideal environment, which means they're going to thrive and do really, really well. Probably better than if you just put them in the ground randomly in your backyard.
0: Oh, yeah, because really when you're doing this vertical application, you're you're thinking through everything that that plant needs and you're giving it to it.
1: Absolutely, yeah. You, you're creating the perfect environment for it in its container. So, of course it's going to do wonderfully for you.
0: Nice. You know, I'm thumbing through your book, Vertical Gardening, and when I got to the back, there is this amazing list of books that you've written. Canning and Preserving, Companion Planting, Square Foot Gardening, Raised Bed Gardening, Hydroponic, Growing Giant Pumpkins. The list goes on and on. How did you get so prolific at writing these cool books?
1: Well, I I started writing them because we... I had some issues and I needed a source of income. Our, our son had been diagnosed with leukemia and we'd mm. had to leave our jobs and it was a, a really difficult time. And I needed something I could do whilst I was looking after him in my sort of spare time. Yeah. And so we, we, I started doing this and because it was something I liked and I was really into the gardening and it was a way of keeping myself connected with it. But it's just grown and grown and grown. And since he's made a full recovery, i now putting more and more. Thank you. It's, it's wonderful. It's really just taken off, and I've realized I'm very passionate about it. I love you the think? subject, and I've just a little. <laughs> uh, and I've got so much to share. And there's a lot of people that, you yeah, know, they're picking up the books that I'm writing, and it's allowing them to take a shortcut. Because obviously, over the years, I've grown lots of things, I've made an awful lot of mistakes. And I've been sort of improving my ability to grow things. And in these books, I can share that information and help people understand how they can grow things without having to go through three or four growing seasons or trying to work out what soil conditions carrots want and uh, everything else. They can just read the book and off they go and hopefully get it right the first time.
0: Right. Or at least the second time with a little bit of adjustments, exactly.
1: Yeah. Exactly.
0: Well, awesome. Well, thank you so much for sharing everything today. My pleasure. So I'm going to shift on you. And as a returning guest, I'd like for you to share one of your vivid childhood memories associated with food.
1: Well, one of the things I remember is when I was younger, my my parents were in the Royal Air Force and we lived on the Royal Air Force Base and all the uh, family houses there had relatively big gardens. They had a vegetable patch. They usually had at least one fruit tree. We had a big uh, apple tree in ours, and other people had pears and plums, so we used to share them out between families. Because this, this was in the sort of 1970s, so uh, fruit was quite expensive, and you, you didn't always have it. But the thing I remember is in that garden, we had uh, what was called an Anderson shelter, which is an old World War II bomb shelter. And it was really? still there yeah it was it was it was really cool, and it was obviously enclosed, and it 's dark, and you could close the doors and it was a bit damp so my parents I remember them growing mushrooms in there because again wow. back, back then mushrooms were relatively expensive, and they they had these trays and, and they they would grow the mushrooms and bring them into us, and I just always remember sort of the these home grown mushrooms. Uh, It was absolute. I mean, I probably didn't appreciate it as much as I should have done at the time, being much younger. But now I sort of really appreciate it. I think that was so cool that they did that.
0: So the seeds of your lifelong passion of growing your own food—it started back then.
1: Yeah, yeah, they they did have a a vegetable garden. I remember foraging for blackberries uh, near our house, and like I said, I, I remember picking apples fresh from the tree and eating them. and It was, it, yeah, thinking about it, it does all come back to that. And it's like, wow, this is, this is just so exciting to be able to do this.
0: Nice. And what new piece of advice might you have for our listeners?
1: The big thing I've learned this year, I got really interested in, is bees and pollinating insects. Because... I've, been, I've got an allotment, so, which is about a couple of miles from my house where I go to grow things, but I grow things in, 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 in my garden as well. And we live in a very, very urban area. It's very built up. There's not a lot of green space. And... I noticed this year that the plants I was growing at home produced an awful lot less fruit than those that was at the allotment. So the tomatoes here, I would get out of each plant maybe half a dozen tomatoes, but the plants at the allotment would be absolutely covered with them. Interesting. And I, I, I realised it comes down to pollinators because oh, yes. I, I was at, yeah, I was at the allotment and saw all these bees because we keep honeybees there as a sort of community. And I sort of realized that there's very, very few pollinators in the city. So I've planted up um, my front garden. It's full of flowers now, like snapdragons, marigolds, foxgloves and plants like that that the bees absolutely love. And I've done a lot more at the allotment to encourage bees in. So I've trained some apples as espalias, so they're growing along wires. But underneath them, I'm now planting uh, lavender And chrysanthemums and a couple of other plants, because not only do they uh, encourage pollinating insects in, but they also act as companion plants and keep off things like aphids and ants and other things. Oh yes. So I've really sort of got into this year the fact that this natural planting really works, and it's actually really really exciting.
0: When it's you know looking to nature and how nature has done things for millions of years.
1: Well, absolutely. I mean, companion planting, for example, we've, we've been doing that as a human race for thousands of years. But with, with so, but with the rise of sort of science and everything else, we poo-pooed it and got out our chemicals and started spraying fields. But scientists have started researching companion planting and gone, well, yeah, this works. So, you know, this is, this is really, really nice natural ways of growing. And I'm hoping through it, to not have to use any chemical sprays at all. And I've bought some neem oil, which I'm told is a very good oil to use against aphids and things like that. Yep. So I'm going to try that over the next sort of season. And I said, I'm, I'm hoping to be completely chemical free in all my growing in the sort of next couple of months.
0: Cool. And you should write a book about that.
1: <laughs> I'm sure I will.
0: <laughs> so... One of the couple of things that I noticed as you were talking, first of all, tomatoes, yes, the bees and pollinators help, but one of the things you can do with tomatoes is just go out every morning and shake the plant, can't you?
1: I could do, yes, I could. But, of course, I'd forgotten to do that because I was so <laughs> used to planting out and the bees doing their thing. Right. Um, we used to live out in the countryside, so there was plenty of them. But, obviously, I had. it took me a while to work out that, the bees weren't doing the job because there was very few of them. So again, learning lesson for next year, shake my tomato plants.
0: Yeah, exactly. And you've used the word allotment a couple of times for those of us that may not know what that is. Can you explain that?
1: Yeah. uh, And allotment, I think is very specific to the United Kingdom. And it's basically, it's uh, the land is owned by uh, usually by the local council or the local city, and they divide it up into portions. I mean, I think mine's about 125 square metres, so that's about 300 square feet, I think-ish. Yep. And you're allowed to grow what you want on it, and some places let you keep chickens and some let you keep bees. And the idea behind them was they originated when we were fighting in the world wars, and there, we, we were sort of having to grow food because obviously shipping was not possible. So they, they started out, I think, after World War I, and they've grown in popularity. And they, they did wane for a little bit in sort of the 80s and 90s. But they've really started to become very, very popular as more people are becoming aware of the impact of, of their food and wanting to grow their own because they don't want to use chemicals. They want to reduce their carbon footprint. And just because they want to be outdoors and do something healthy, and I said that they're wonderful communities. A lot of the people there tend to be retired. All right. I mean, some of the people I know on my one, they've been there for forty or fifty years growing. Wow. And they they are such a wonderful source of information. I, I mean, one of them, I, I I was busy digging out my trenches and hills for my potatoes one year, and this gentleman, he was eighty four at the time, had two hip replacements and prostate cancer. And he said oh, don't do it that way, do it this way. And what he would do is he'd just put his shovel in the ground as far as it would go, wiggle it around a bit and drop the potato in, and then move on and do that all the way around. And he got a fantastic crop of potatoes every year.
0: Yes, And I sort
1: of thought... I'm doing it that way, much quicker.
0: <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. So I've traveled to Europe a couple of times in the past 15 years. I was in uh, Switzerland and Italy, and then I was in Croatia about five years ago. And one of the striking things that I noticed was everybody grows food there, and that is so different than it is here in the States. On my street, if there's of 22 houses I know I grow food, and if there's one other garden, I would actually be surprised. What has been your experience with people growing food there?
1: I, I think it on, certainly on continental Europe, it's really, really big. I've lived in sort of Switzerland and Germany and traveled around sort of that area, and they, they do really love growing their own food. Again, I think it comes down to sort of the Second World War, when there were food shortages, there was strict mm, rationing, yep. and people started growing their own because that was the only way they could get a lot, of, a lot of the food. And I think it's just always continued, and a lot of the people that do it are, are now quite elderly, but it, it's starting to become a, a lot more fashionable, and a lot of younger <laughs> people right. now, people in their 20s and 30s, are starting to, to take, take it up and they're doing not because of shortages of food because you can go to a supermarket and buy absolutely anything and to be honest the prices in the supermarket is much cheaper and easier than growing your own but they're growing it because they're concerned about the use of chemicals and yes yeah they want organic food they want to know where their food comes from and they want to make sure it's not been transported halfway across the world and that it's fresh. And, and to be plentifully honest, you eat something that you've grown yourself and just freshly picked. And it's so much better than something that's been sat on a, in a refrigeration truck for two weeks traveling across Europe. You know, it's the, the taste is just so much better. And I think the health benefits are there as well.
0: Yeah, exactly. Well, once again, thank you so much for joining us on the show today, Jason.
1: Well, thank you ever so much for having me. It's been an absolute pleasure again.
0: Oh, yeah. Love chatting with you, for sure. So how can we find this book? How can our listeners get a hold of you?
1: Well, the book is available on Amazon. It's a paperback, and it's an electronic book, so you can download it to your Kindle or your Kindle reading software. Uh, you can find me on Twitter or Instagram. I'm at owner. Or you can visit my website, which is gardeningwithjason.com, which I'm, I'm still in the process of setting up, but it's uh, a bit more memorable. And it's got all my books listed there, including the recent publications.
0: Excellent. Thank you for that. Today, we also want to thank Jason and Book Pub Co. Publishing, as we have four copies of his book, Vertical Gardening, a complete guide to growing food, herbs, and flowers in small spaces to share with our listening audience. We want to give them to you. If you'd like to enter our drawing, please email us at podcast at urbanfarm.org with a subject line... I want to garden vertically. Make sure you provide us with your name and mailing address. We will pick four random emails from the first 50 people who respond in the next 45 days. You can also find show notes from today's podcast at urbanfarm.org forward slash vertical. The Urban Farm podcast is brought to you by our amazing team, producer Janice Norton, editor Ken Kingsborough, Associate, Katie Fiori, and hosted by me, Farmer Greg. Please subscribe to us on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you can find your podcasts. And if you like the show, please rate, review, and share it with your friends. Visit us at urbanfarmpodcast.org to find our full list of over 500 shows and our blog with articles and recipes. Then check out urbanfarm.org to find links,